Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So my buddy here, Nathan Smith, is joining me again for another special episode. Uh, Nathan Smith is a student at Texas State University. He's a psychology student, and we're doing a little series where he is going to talk about a book that I don't know anything about, uh, possibly don't know anything about. I don't know what book he's going to talk about. And then he's going to talk about it, and then I'll ask him some converse questions, and we'll have a conversation about it. So Nathan Smith, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, what, what do you have for us today? Well, today I have a book for you entitled The Puppet and the Dwarf, The Perverse Core of Christianity by wow. a philo Yeah, yeah, it's quite a- okay. it's quite The a, Puppet and the Dwarf? <laughs> yep. Wow, okay. The Perverse Core of Christianity. And if that's already a tough title, get ready for this author's <laughs> name because it's, it's written by a philosopher named Slavoj Zizek. Of course it is. Yes, it is. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. It, it, so here we go. I, it'll be, it, it's, it's a lot less intimidating than it sounds, though, I promise. Um, so Slavoj Zizek is a Slovenian philosopher uh, or professor of philosophy. He, um, he sort of specializes in Hegel, in Marx, and in a, uh, a psychoanalyst named Jacques Lacan, who uh, was very big in France in like the 60s and 70s. Um, and in 2003, he published this book, The Puppet and the Dwarf. Um, I don't know if this was his first uh, uh, book about Christianity or not, but it's certainly one of his best, uh, best known ones. Um, I first encountered Zizek though, through a book called The Monstrosity of Christ. Um, and that again, sounds like a terrible title. I'm sure it's in many Christians, but it's, it's a quote from Hegel who took very Christ very seriously. And um, he, Hegel saw this, this meaning in Christ that could really shake the soul, could really transform it in an almost violent way. And he referred to that as the monstrosity of Christ. So it's not a, at all an anti-Christian text or anything like that. It was in fact co-written with a man named John Milbank, Milbank who is a, uh, a theologian himself. So, um, but that was the first book I ever read of Zizek uh, and I read it as a missionary, in fact, uh, which was kind of a bit of a no-no. But um, <laughs> then I found my way to The Puppet and the Dwarf, which is probably a little bit more of a concise presentation of Zizek's approach to Christianity. Um, so just a little bit of background on Zizek. He's, you know, he's a philosopher. He specializes in, in writing about like psychoanalysis. He is a, he is a Marxist. Um, he identifies as a Marxist. Um, and he uh, is an atheist as well. And in fact, um, not that it is required by any means to be an atheist to glean insights from Zizek's writing, but he is a big advocate of um, what he's referred to as the Christian atheist experience. Mm. Um, so anyway, so the puppet and the dwarf, though, the puppet and the dwarf uh, actually sort of kicks off in large part discussing um, the book of Job. So Zizek has this very interesting interpretation of Job. So it, for those who may be unfamiliar with the story, obviously, Job begins as this, this very righteous man, this, this man who does you know, precisely what he's supposed to do. He's very faithful to God. He's good to his family. He's good to his community. He follows the commandments. He's a good Israelite. Um, and uh, there's this moment in the book of Job where God sort of makes a gamble with the accuser and says that 
Job, the accuser tells God basically that if Job hits a hard time in life, he'll just give up all of that morality. He, he won't be faithful to God. He won't be faithful to his family or friends or whatever. And God says, I'll take that bet. So the, uh, the, it's a very interesting ancient story. The accuser sort of let loose on Job. His, his children are killed. His, uh, his home is destroyed. And he's essentially left in this horrible destitute state where he's scraping sores with pot shards in like a, a garbage heap basically. And so uh, Zizek's analysis, though, begins when Job's friends first approach Job. So the scriptural narrative is that Job's friends initially approach him and sit with him in silence, I think for seven days. Um, but then they begin talking to Job, and that's where they get themselves into trouble. So what happens with Job's friends is they look at his suffering, this just this, and they see this absurd situation. I mean, to modern readers, especially, I think it would strike us as absurd that God would sort of strike a bet with, with essentially Satan and uh, say, hey, yeah, like toss him back and forth, see what I care, he'll, he'll hold on. Um, so there's this very absurd situation that they're seeing and they begin immediately to try to explain it. So like a friend says, well, you know, maybe this is just a test from God. If you, you grit your teeth, everything will work out fine in the end. Um, one says, maybe you've accidentally sinned. So maybe just try repenting in general and, and maybe, you know, you can fix it that way. And I think one even goes so far as uh, to say that I think you did sin and you're just lying to us now because God would never punish an innocent man. He would, he would punish a sinner. And so Zizek takes a lot of... Um, a lot of meaning from this particular part of the story where Job's friends sort of attempt to theologize away his suffering. Um, Zizek writes a lot about what he calls ideology. Um, and that can be political, it can be religious, it can be just like a personal philosophy. It's basically the lens through which you interpret life, through which you make sense of life. Um, Jacques Lacan, this, the psychoanalyst I mentioned earlier, he referred to these things as the big other. It's um, sort of this organizing principle or principles around which you orient your life and without which your life to you at least would hold very little sense and very little like meaning. You, you, you would feel adrift in your life without these organizing principles. And so for Job's friends, these organizing principles are things like uh, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, bad things don't happen to good people. Um, and that, or other, or other things, even that, like God is constantly testing your morality. So there are these these big others around which they orient their lives to make sense of their lives. Um, so of course, the Book of Job, though a large part of it is essentially Job debating his friends. They bring they bring these theological explanations of his suffering, and uh, he he pushes back against them. He doesn't give a counter narrative. He only says things like. Christians will know well this this line, I know my my redeemer liveth, um, or I know my advocate lives in a more modern English. And it's essentially Job saying, like, look, I know there's some there's got to be somebody in heaven who can plead my case because this feels wrong. Like none of your explanations make sense. Like this isn't supposed to be. Um, and in the end, the the surprising thing that that Zizek points uh, to the most is the very end when God descends and tells all of Job's theological friends, why did you not listen to my servant Job? And it's a, it's a very strange ending to the book because Job's friends essentially gave very orthodox theological responses, especially by today's standards. I mean, when I grew up as a Latter-day Saint, 
um, there was this very palpable sense, especially from the Book of Mormon, and I think even the Book of Mormon itself actually outgrows this through the text, um, that when you follow the commandments, you're blessed. When you break the commandments, you're not blessed and things go bad. Um, and, and Job pushes back against that constantly and consistently, but he doesn't offer a counter narrative. And God comes down and says, Job was right. And that's, that's um, where Zizek sort of begins his exploration of Christianity, because he sees Job as a, a prototype of Christ, rather than, say, Adam. Mm. So um, I, I just, I've got more, but uh, if, 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 I hope that's making sense. No, so I, I find this very interesting. I want you to continue with this uh, analogy that he's making. So he's, it's fascinating to think of Job as kind of being like a type or foreshadowing of Christ. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of makes sense in one context, you know. Also, what also makes the Book of Job so interesting is it's not a Hebrew. It it's predates. It's the oldest book in the Bible, so it's yeah. obviously comes from another tradition, um, and then was probably reworked into and uh, into the scriptures a certain way. So it's a very unique and odd, but very fascinating book. Continue. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it, it, it does stick out in the canon quite a bit. Um, and I know there is a little bit of um, typing, typology, comparing Job to Christ, but it's usually just in the suffering. Mm -hmm. um, but Zizek draws a special, a special attention to not only the suffering, but the, the lack of an explanation for it and the tendency to try to explain it away. So you'll notice this tendency with Job's friends that they're not trying to just explain his suffering, they're trying to explain it away. So the reason that we don't have to take your suffering seriously is because, well, it's going to end eventually because God's testing you. Or, well, I mean, if you sinned, just, just repent real quick, and then we won't have to deal with the suffering at all anyway. Or maybe you're lying and you're a sinner and you, you're you just trying to pull a fast one on us, in which case you deserve your suffering. Um, but Zizek, I think, derives this meaning from Job that we're supposed to sort of not try to explain away, but engage the suffering of others. And so the way that he sort of brings this to Christ um, is that he, he sort of refers to Christ as the, the most concise way I could put it is that Christ is the death of the big other, of all sorts of big others. So um, in Christ, according to, to Zizek, God willingly becomes human just like us. Um, and in that sense, God descends from being the big other par excellence into being just a human being like any one of us. So there's this, um, this sense in which Job's friends are constantly appealing to God in order to validate their explanations, but God in Christ descends from that Godhood, essentially taking away the, the ability to appeal to God with this big other. Um, so I think a very good example actually might be the parable of the good Samaritan. So, you know, the, the, the Samaritan, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left to die on the side of the road, and he's passed by a priest, and he's passed by a Levite, and they're not, they, they don't go near him or touch him because there is a, a, a religious uh, injunction to not touch dead bodies um, and that sort of thing. There's a little bit of prejudice being that he's a Samaritan as opposed to, a, you know, a Jew from Judah. Um, I there's a, there's a man named Jared Anderson. He's, uh, I don't believe he's a Latter-day Saint. I would identify as a Latter-day Saint now, but he was a Latter-day Saint. He wrote an excellent version of this parable. Um, and instead of a priest and a Levite, it's a 70 and an apostle um, in the LDS church. And that's not at all meant to be a polemic by any means. It's just to 
point home exactly what Jesus seems to be saying with this, which is that there are certain religious mindsets that prevent us from addressing reality itself. So the reality of the Samaritans suffering, according to Jesus in this parable at least, takes priority always uh, over our, even our religious obligations. So there's this sense in which the, the principles around which we orient our lives can even take us away, not only from reality, but from the greatest reality, arguably, which is the suffering of people. So Jesus, I think, sort of, uh, I think Zizek sort of would find a good illustration in that, that um, God sort of steps down from the status of being the big other who determines what your life should be, and instead tries to get completely involved in, uh, in his creation. There's this line actually from Zizek from the book, The Monstrosity of Christ. So this isn't the puppet and the dwarf, but he wrote this in Monstrosity of Christ. And I read this as a missionary and it really struck me. He says, quote, what dies on the cross is not only God's earthly representative incarnation, but the God of beyond itself. That is to say, what dies on the cross is precisely the quote unquote private God, the God of our quote unquote way of life, the God who grounds a particular community, end quote. So there's this sense in which God is not this abstract being who's just sort of floating in eternity and watching and uh, watching our lives unfold and making demands from the outside, but that God sort of leaps headlong into the pit with us and becomes a part of it. Um, there's, a, there's another line, for, this time from the puppet and the dwarf, where Zizek says, quote, what if eternity is a sterile, impotent, lifeless domain of pure potentialities? which in order to fully actualize itself has to pass through temporal existence. So there's this sense in which eternity is this like um, very platonic, untouched, very innocent reality that God willingly surrenders in order to jump into the particularity and even the suffering of being a human being. Hmm. Um, the term the puppet and the dwarf, what, what is that referring to? That's a very interesting question. Um, so Zizek, if I remember correctly, Zizek draws this analogy to, I think it's even maybe an old joke or like an old, there's something operatic about it or something, but there's a, like a chess game that's going on and um, there's a puppet that's playing chess and no one realizes that there's like a dwarf underneath the puppet controlling the puppet. So, the, so people just see the puppet itself and they think that that's the, that's the player, but there's this underlying reality that's controlling the puppet. And so Zizek, I think, describes it as a way of, um, if I remember correctly, he describes it as a way of like describing how Christ relates to God. So there's this um, sense in which, in which God willingly goes from being the one who controls the universe itself in every aspect, again, only according to like Zizek in this particular sense, um, to being one who is controlled. Uh, to being someone who isn't the universe itself, who isn't control itself, but who is, like any one of us, capable of experiencing powerlessness, suffering, and even death. Um, there's a, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a gross one, but uh, there's an analogy he draws to eye surgery. There's a certain eye surgery where you can go uh, and have this done without anesthetic, and it involves having to have the eye uh, pulled from the socket very securely. Um, but there's a, there's a way in which that eye can be turned and that eye can see its own face. Mm. And it's a very odd concept, right? Because the eye belongs to the face, mm -hmm. that's itself. 
but it still sees it as this separate object. And so that's sort of how he describes Christ relating to God, which is this is God, but this is God uh, divorced from himself in a sense. So it's interesting because it's the puppet in the dwarf, the perverse core of Christianity. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the perverse core? The perverse core, I would say, is actually really well summed up in Paul. Um, and so this is this is actually what I find interesting. And we, you and I have discussed this off camera before, but um, especially French philosophers, Zizek is Slovenian, but especially like continental, like European philosophers in general have sort of experienced this resurgence of interest in Paul. And the central theme in Paul's writing, according to them, is this, this competition between what Paul calls in Greek, charis and nomos. And we could say that's grace and law. And so we, we've talked a lot about what Lacan called the big other, the way that the, the things that we orient our lives around, the principles that we use to make sense of our lives and to guide our actions. And philosophers like Zizek would say that that's exactly what Paul means by law, which is the thing that's diametrically opposed to charis or grace, or even we could say perhaps unconditional gifted love. So there's this, um, the, the perverse core of Christianity, I would say, is that, how to put it? We don't get the privilege of explaining life and we don't get the privilege of understanding life. We instead get the challenge to engage life in all its absurdity, in all its suffering. So it's, the, it's the, the diametric opposition between Job's suffering um, and his friends coming to like sit with him in that suffering for seven days, and they don't even say a word for seven days, according to the text. And then Job's friends getting fed up with the absurdity of it and with the suffering of it and trying to explain it away to where it's not their problem anymore. Hmm. So there's, there's this sense, in the, the, the opposition between grace and law in this sense would be the opposition between embracing something for what it is, no matter how painful and inexplicable and unclear it may be, and then trying to separate yourself from the pain and suffering of that reality by imposing these laws and these standards, these organizing principles that we then equate with God himself, in a sense. They, they're, they're not just um, personal philosophies. They can get up to the level of of divine commandments. And they're, they're a way of separating ourselves from realities that we consider too painful or beyond our understanding. So you had mentioned earlier that he described himself in a, in a certain term, a Christian mm -hmm. atheist. What was, the, what was the term that he called himself? A Christian atheist, yes. Okay, so it was Christian atheist. Okay, so that's a, obviously a very provocative term. Now, of course, Jewish atheist is not as weird, um, but Christian atheist was, is kind of an odd concept. I guess the question I would have is, what would atheists and philosophers, especially in Europe, who have this interest in Job, have this interest in Paul, um, as atheists, what, what are they trying to get out of the text and why are they taking it so seriously if they don't think any of this is true? Hmm. I think... Um... I think there's two things to consider. Well, actually, perhaps three, but <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I think one thing to consider is that um, when when you consider the term atheism, it's that a bit is a negation of what follows theism. So it's a negation of God. But for for Zizek, it's a very 
It's a negation of a very specific type of God. Um, the God who can give these objective divine commands around which you orient your life. Um, the other thing that I think is important to understand too, is that a lot of these philosophers, I think, especially coming from a continental perspective, have, I think, I think personally, they have, culturally speaking, a closer relation to concerns like fascism and Nazism. So by virtue of just living in Europe, and, and Zizek growing up in Slovenia, I mean, he has complicated feelings about Marxism and communism and the like, but he's not, you know, he's not um, Pollyanna-ish at all about the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc and the absolute disaster that was and how it fell apart. His, his career has largely been trying to understand why it fell apart. That's, that's how he's described himself. And I think that one of the conclusions that Zizek himself has reached is um, this sense, this, this uncritical and in a sense, almost cowardly um, deferral to authority, to an imagined pretended authority that can save you from the blood and mud and confusion of being human. The other aspect of it too, I think why Christianity would probably be because Christianity is just so, regardless of how one may feel about this and what variety of Christianity one may be discussing at the time, I think Christianity, broadly speaking, is so woven into so much of European culture, even in a post-religious world, that um, speaking about Christianity is a meaningful way, I think, about speaking about the intellectual development of, of well, I guess the history of European thought in general and European culture in general. Yeah, you know, and that's one of my great grieving things about Europe is that they have their churches are empty. Um, they seem unmoored in some ways. It's interesting because we look at our country, it's kind of fallen apart in some ways. But, you know, Europe, it just, it, it's not quite sure what it wants to be. It doesn't know, it doesn't really have an identity anymore. They had an identity via Christianity, but now they're trying to, in a secular way, trying to figure out what they are, who they are. And it's interesting that their philosophers are starting to go back to maybe some of the core Western ideas or Christian ideas that help um, you know, establish Europe. And perhaps are they trying to maybe get some guidance from Christianity to help them maybe build a, a better Europe in one sense or a better world? I think um, I would say yes and no. Okay. So um, I think a lot of folks, especially perhaps in post-religious communities or at least communities that describe themselves as, as highly secular, um, that we like to think, and I include myself in this very much, by the way, that we like to think we already are post-ideological, that we've moved on beyond the, um, the, the weird fairy tales that our grandparents used to tell us, and now we have reason and we can see reality for what it is. And I think the, um, the insight that Zizek finds in Christianity, because he says, in, in his view, in order to have this truly Christian experience, you must go through an episode of Christian atheism. And for him, that's the, the, for him, that is the death of a very particular kind of God. So not like God in and of God's self necessarily. I think that Christian atheism may not be the best term for it, but it's a, it's a death of a very particular kind of God. And I think perhaps a very particular or a popular kind of God, which is this God who always has it figured out. So, I mean, the extreme examples would be Nazism and fascism, where you have these totalitarian philosophies that have an answer to every question, and we know how we need to orient our society, we know what the problems are, we know how to wipe them out, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it violently because we know it's true. 
and a very, very small, far, far, far less violent one, a viol far less violent example might be, um, there, was, there was this really interesting book written by uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Watari called Anti-Oedipus, and it was against psychoanalysis at the time especially, which it, it described as a kind of fascism where it approaches this patient, this client, um, as if it has all the explanations for why the patient, why the client is suffering mentally and emotionally, and therefore all the ways that it can fix the problem. And I think that um, one of the problems that we are running into as a broader, speaking in terms of like a very broad modern world, is that we have moved from being these ideologically monolithic cultures to ideologically pluralistic cultures um, and I think that the solution that Zizek is seeing in Christianity is that we need to move, we need to work harder at being a post-ideological world where we realize we don't have the answers and we may never have the answers. We may be incapable of answers. And so instead what's left to us is to attend to one another in community in the way that Paul described through charis, through grace, through, through this engaged kind of love. Very fascinating. I'm so glad the puppet and the dwarf. Um, check it out, folks. Um, it's a. It's a. I've never heard of this book. Uh, you had hinted towards it towards me before, and I said, "Well, maybe throw this into the mix because I, I'm fascinated by the concept." Very interesting, folks, isn't it? Just to think that you know we have people who are atheists who are engaging uh, the holy texts of Christianity and trying to uh, get something out of them and apply it in a practical way. And actually, I think that's kind of like if you aren't a student of the Bible, you think that it has nothing to show you or teach you. You are missing out on so much, even if you're not a believer, because the Bible, um, in so many ways, whether you're using the Hebrew scriptures or uh, the New Testament, um, they have something to offer humanity. There's a reason why it's the best-selling book of all time. And there's a reason why it's, it's, it built civilizations, it built cultures, it gave us the scientific method, it gave us humanism, um, it gave us many of the tools that atheists use today. Um, but they're indebted in some sense to a Christian world that helped produce these things. And so I tell people, you know, every school should have a Bible class, uh, not as a Bible study, but as a Bible class to understand the underlying aspects of our civilization, especially in the West, you know, just have an understanding of who we are, because we need to have an identity and understand our foundations as well. That's just kind of me going on, a maybe sound of a kind of a right-wing spiel, if you will. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, when I was actually in high school in Texas, I, uh, I took a, a year-long course on the history of the, uh, of the Old Testament and the New Testament impact on Western culture. Yeah. And it was, as you might imagine, being in Texas, it was watched by a lot of watchdog groups to make sure it wasn't devotional or, right. or in, in any way, shape, or form. And it was a fascinating history. And I think something that I gained from Zizek especially is that um, I, I have a somewhat complicated relationship with, with Western religion in general, with Christianity, with, re with religion worldwide, mm -hmm. of course. But um, I think Zizek was one of those writers that really helped me to understand that you can be an outright atheist and still find wisdom in an otherwise complicated world. And I think that um, he also kind of, again, kind of getting back to the main theme of this book, he helped me understand that a lot of the ways in which I sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater were ways of sort of protecting myself when I could instead engage that which brought me pain in the first place and still find something in it. 
Uh, what a fascinating journey that uh, you and I are both on it anyways. And yeah. uh, I'm glad to take it with you, dude. So thanks for sharing this Likewise. book. Uh, this is a continuing uh, uh, series that uh, Nathan and I are doing. Uh, and it's just very exciting to be able to talk about these different books. Um, I just want to uh, thank Nathan for coming on. Always. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's always a pleasure, dude. And I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new video comes out. You all have yourself a wonderful day.